Good morning, I'm Pastor David, and I'm just stepping in for Pastor Jeremy. This is, Pastor Jeremy was supposed to preach here this Sunday, but some of you may have heard, others of you may not have heard, Pastor Jeremy's dad passed away about 10 days ago or so, at the age of 66, and uh, he had his Alzheimer's disease uh, uh, seven years ago at the age of 59, feels so young. But he has been suffering. He was in a nursing home, and he passed away about 10 days ago. So Pastor Jeremy is in Missouri, attending to those details. In fact, the memorial service took place yesterday. And so that's why I'm stepping in to bring a message from God's Word. So let's pause here for a moment, pray for the Lobdell family, and then begin the sermon. All right, so let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we bring before you the Lobdell family. From all that I have heard from Pastor Jeremy, it was a life that was well-lived. A man who loved you, who went on to get a PhD in the Old Testament, and then went on to become a medical doctor, and you putting both of those together, he served the suffering and the oppressed around the world. Whenever there was an earthquake or a tsunami, he was there providing medical assistance. Father, your ways are higher than ours, and we don't know why these things happen so early in life. But nevertheless, we trust in you that his work on this earth is complete. We trust in you that he heard the words from you, well done, good and faithful servant, as you welcomed him into heaven and embraced him for a life that was well lived. And Father God, nevertheless, those of us who are on, the, on this side, especially for the entire Lobdell family, from his wife Karen to Jeremy and uh, Josh and Becky and, and their spouses, their ch- children and grandchildren, they are grieving because they will never see Mr. Craig Lobdell again on this earth in the way that they have seen him and embraced him and enjoyed him. So in their grief, and I pray that you will be their comfort. Father God, give them the peace that surpasses all understanding and give them the assurance of hope that their dad, their husband, their grandpa is with Jesus in heaven. So Father, as they grieve and as they celebrate, telling stories to one another of a life that was well lived, encourage them, Lord, and may this be a celebration as well even as they grieve. So we commit the entire Lobdell family to you and ask that you would be with them this day and the days and months and years to come. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. <clears throat> so this is, we are in the middle of a sermon series on stewardship. And uh, we had two of them and then we took a break for Mission Sunday. And this is actually the sermon number three. And then next week we will conclude uh, this particular sermon series on stewardship. So what I want to do is to begin with the story that comes from the Great Depression era in the 1930s here in the United States. And one of the things that I want to tell you is that the dollar amounts that I'm going to mention here would seem so ridiculously low. But in those days, the dollar amounts that I'm going to mention, they are huge. For example, I looked it up. The minimum wage at that time was about $2.50 an 
a day. And Henry Ford doubled this to $5, and all of a sudden, people from everywhere from the, from the United States came to work for him. And so you get a picture, you know, how much people were making, and the dollar amounts that I'm going to tell you, I want you to know they were, they were really huge at the time. So this is a true story that comes from the Great Depression era in the 1930s. And the story is about a poor Christian family of a widowed single mom and her three daughters. Christians. And a month before Easter, the pastor of their small church announced that a special offering would be taken to help a poor family. That's all that he said. And he asked everyone to save and give sacrificially. So they had a month to save as much as they can. Again, remember, Great Depression era. And so they, 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 a month they had to save as much as they can and to provide this special offering on Easter Sunday. So when the family got home, despite being poor, they talked about what they could do. And they decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. So that was going to be their food for a month. This, they said, would allow them to save about $20 of grocery money for this special offering over the period of that one month. Remember, $2.50 a day was the wage. Then they thought that if they kept their electric lights turned off as much as possible and did not listen to radio, there was no TV, so listen to radio, they could save on that month's electric bill. And the oldest of the three daughters decided to get as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and the other two decided to babysit as many babysitting jobs as possible over this period of one month. And the middle daughter, who actually told this story several years later, said this. That month was the best of our lives. Every day we counted the money to see how much we have saved. And every Sunday, the pastor reminded the congregation to save for the special offering. The day before Easter, the three daughters walked over to a nearby grocery store and got the manager to give them three crisp $20 bills, as she told the story, and one $10 bill for all the coins and changes and pennies that they had saved over a period of this one month. So that's about $70. On that Easter Sunday morning when the special offering was taken, the mom put the $10 bill in the offering basket. And each of the girls, three girls, put the $20, crisp $20 bills in the offering baskets. And they walked home after church. As they walked home after church, they sang all the way home with great joy, having given $70. And then there was a surprise. Late that afternoon, the pastor drove up his car to their home. The mom went to the door and talked with for him for a moment and then came back with the envelope in hand. 
They had no clue that they were the ones going to receive this special offering. When the mom opened the envelope, a bunch of money fell out. There were those three crisp $20 bills, one $10 bill, which this full family had given to the special offering, that's $70, and then 17 $1 bills others had given for a total of $87. And the middle daughter who told this story said, we didn't talk. We just sat and stared at the floor. First, they did not know that they were the poor family in that church at that, until that moment. Second, they were saddened that the rest of the congregation gave only $17. All that week, the girls went to school, came back home, and no one talked much. Finally, on that Saturday, the mom asked the girls what they wanted to do with this money of $87. That Sunday at church, a missionary speaker came and talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. And the missionary said $100 would put a roof on a church. So when a special offering was taken, this poor family of a widowed mom and three daughters gave all of those 70, $87 that they had been given. And later in the service, when the offering was counted, the pastor announced that they have collected a little over $100, of which they had given $87 of it. The missionary was excited as he did not expect such a large offering from a smaller congregation like this during the Depression era. So the missionary said, you must have some rich people in this church. And the middle daughter who told this story said this, suddenly it struck me. We had given $87 of that little over $100. We were the rich family in the church. Hadn't the missionary said so? From that day on, I have never been poor again. Does a story like that touch your heart? What's so different about this family? It seems that they were the poorest in the church. Because they were the ones chosen to receive the special offering. Yet they gave more than anyone else. And that raises also another question. Why didn't others? Give as much as this poor family. Led by a widowed mom and three daughters. Gave. You know, this, it's this morning, in continuing our sermon series on stewardship, I want to answer that question for you by introducing you to a New Testament church and its people who displayed a similar kind of generosity that this widowed mom and her three daughters displayed. So, 
I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we look at the first five verses. And if you're using the Bible that's available here at the church, which we call the Blue Bible, it's found on page 1,230. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 on page 1,230. So as we begin, let me give you a little bit of a background to this particular chapter. At the time of this writing to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul was taking a collection for the poor Christian, Christians in Jerusalem. So in requesting them to give to the collection, the Apostle Paul actually presents this church as a model church that excelled in giving. And these churches come from but used to be called in the Roman Empire from the province of Macedonia. So you will see a map on the screen. And you will see it's modern. What's in the middle block is actually the modern day Greece. And, and the Roman Empire, there was a northern part of it was the province of Macedonia. The southern part was the province of Achaia. And you see in the Macedonian churches are churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. In fact, we know there's a New Testament book in the Bible, the Philippians. And there's a, there are two books of the Bible in the New Testament, Thessalonians. They come from the northern part of Greece. Those are the Macedonian churches. And there's the Berean churches also that's mentioned in the New Testament. Whereas Corinth is in the south and in the province of Achaia, and so is Athens. So that's what's happening here is that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is in the southern part of Greece, using, presenting the northern part churches as a model for giving. All right, so that's the introduction to that. So let's begin in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now these verses tell us the churches in Macedonia, the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, they were under severe test of affliction. Now here in this text, we are not told what that affliction was. However, from church history, we know that the Macedonian churches were facing persecution from the Roman government and also people like Jews and Gentiles alike who were opposed to Christianity at the time. So persecution was very severe at the time for Christians. It is like Hadassah you met last week. She's a Malay Muslim who had become a Christian. As a result, the family has ostracized her. 
a well-to-do family. She has no extended family members. She's on her own. Sometimes what happens is in Malaysia, for example, if you, if you become a Christian, there's discrimination, perhaps difficult to get jobs. So all of a sudden, as a result of persecution, what happens is people become increasingly poor as they are discriminated, as they lose their jobs, as extended family members ostracize them, and all of that, they become increasingly poor. That's what had happened to the churches in Macedonia and the people who were in those churches. Yet Paul says they were extremely generous. In fact, he says they gave according to their means and even beyond their means. And even in the midst, in the midst of persecution, they, they were overflowing with joy. And then in the midst of extreme poverty, they were giving according to their means and beyond their means, meaning generous and sacrificial giving. And they did this voluntarily, not under compulsion. In fact, Paul goes on to say they begged to be included in this one. So the question is, how can a persecuted and poverty-stricken community, Christian community give so generously and sacrificially? How can a poor mom, widowed with three daughters, give so sacrificially? What's their secret? So let's go back to the scripture that I just read to you, at least portions of them, to find the answer to the questions that I'm raising here this morning. And I have underlined oh, some of the phrases for you so we get the picture of what I will be emphasizing. Verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. In other words, grace of God has invaded them. Earlier on, I compared this to, for example, if you are married and you had your first child, you know what I mean by that. In other words, invasion. In other words, the first child is born, and all of a sudden, your life changes for good. It's never the same again. You have never changed diapers before. Now you are. You may have slept through the night, every night up until then. Now you're no longer sleeping at night anymore. And there are many more things that I could say. That's, it's, it's like that. The grace of God invades our lives. All of a sudden, everything changes, and it says here in verse 5, as a result of that, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The Macedonian churches and its people gave so generously and sacrificially because of the way that they responded to God's grace by giving themselves first to God and then to his mission. Therefore, this morning, I want to define stewardship this way. Stewardship is living in response to God's grace by giving ourselves first to God and then to his mission. In that order, grace of God invades us. As a result, we respond by giving ourselves first to God and then to his mission. 
In other words, do you want to be generous and sacrificial in your giving? Then respond to God's grace by giving yourself first to God and then to his mission in that order. And in the rest of the sermon, that's what I want to talk about. So the sermon I outlined will be something like that. I want to talk about this God's grace. What is it? What does it do? What does this invasion do in our lives? And then secondly, I want to talk about the response. What does it mean to give ourselves first to God and then to his mission? So let's dive in. Grace of God. God's grace. What is it? What does it do? Now the, best, the passage that best describes is actually found in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So if you're, using, if you're flipping the Bible, that's on page 1,272, but it will also appear on the screen. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Here it is. For the grace of God has appeared, has invaded, if you will, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So let me break it down for you. It's a mouthful, so let me break it down for you. The first thing that the grace of God does is to bring salvation for people. And we'll find that in portions of, of the scripture that I read to you, verses 11 and 14, and appear on the screen with some highlights. You will see this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And what is salvation? Verse 14 explains it. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work. So what happens here is that, you know, the, the grace of God comes bringing salvation. And the salvation is really, we, we were entangled in sin. So taking us out of that, that's what he calls your lawlessness. And then purifying ourselves by the blood of Christ and then God makes us his own possession. That is salvation. Now, this salvation, by the way, is actually a grace of God. The grace of God is what accomplishes this. And it is a gift of God. Not that we have deserved this or merited this or because of our good works or anything like that. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. So for these reasons, sometimes the grace of God is referred to as unmerited favor from God to us. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to it. It's just God and God alone out of, out of his grace. It provides this for us, invades us. And clean, uh, takes us out of the entanglement of sin, 
and purifies us and adopts us as children, all of that is undeserved, unmerited, and therefore grace of God sometimes is referred to as unmerited favor from God to us. But the grace of God does not stop there. It does even more. Let's get back to the text that I read to you. Now this time focus on verses 12 and 14. It says here, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, which we talked about. Then verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 14, who are zealous for good works. So what's happening here? This is what is referred to as grace of God helps us in our spiritual growth. Sometimes referred to as the sanctification process. In, in other words, the grace of God doesn't stop with the salvation. The grace of God also helps us grow spiritually, which is referred to as sanctification. And during the sanctification process, the, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And the grace of God helps us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then help us to become zealous for good works. Now let's read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. You will see the two phrases there, present age and also the good works. That's why I'm putting it up there. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share the storing of treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That spiritual growth, that sanctification, regardless of whether we are rich or poor, that we reject or renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and then live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we are living. And through all of that as a result of the work of the grace of God in our lives, that we become zealous for good works. Now it's a mouthful, so I have mapped it out in a picture. And so you could see it here on the screen. So here's what the grace of God does. It, is it invades us, and as a result, we are saved. Salvation, sometimes referred to as redemption, sometimes referred to as justification. The horizontal line represents our life. We are walking through life. At some point, the grace of God invades us. We are saved. We are justified by God's grace. And then we are living our life in the present age. That's the sanctification or the spiritual growth process. And then at some point, whether we die and go to heaven or Jesus Christ comes again, his second coming, as a result, we are glorified. Until that happens, there's a sanctification of the spiritual growth. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace of God trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives and trains us to be zealous for good works.
thank God, His grace does not stop once we are saved. He is gracious to us for the rest of our lives, working within and upon us. And for these reasons, I want to say this. How much we give is a spiritual maturity issue. How much we give is a spiritual maturity issue. The more spiritual mature we are, the more we give. In fact, this is supported by actual data. Back in November 2015, our church participated in what is called the Reveal Spiritual Life Survey. And so up on the screen, you will see the data. So I have calculated and made the early stages of spiritual maturity and the advanced stages of spiritual maturity. And there are three statements in the Revealed Spiritual Life Survey. The first one is, I believe a Christian should live a sacrificial life that is not driven by pursuit of material things. In the early spiritual stages, 55% of the people agree with that statement. See what happens when they mature. 71% of the people agree with that statement. Second, my first priority is spending money to support God's work. In the early spiritual stages, 13% of the people agree with that statement. When they advance in their spiritual growth, 28% of the people agree with that statement. Third one, I give 10% or more for God's work, and 54% of the people do that in the early stages. 58% of the people do that in the advanced stages. The Macedonian church and its people were farther along in their spiritual maturity. They were filled with joy even in the midst of severe persecution. They gave generously and sacrificially even in the midst of extreme poverty. Perhaps the same could be said about the spiritual maturity of the widowed woman with three daughters who despite their poverty gave sacrificially to the special offering. So here are some, a couple of questions for us to ponder. I have been thinking about this the whole week. How spiritually mature am I? How spiritually mature am I? And the second question is, does my giving reflect my spiritual maturity? Does my giving reflect my spiritual maturity? Think about this. Now let's move on to the second part of the definition of stewardship. Our response of giving ourselves first to God and then to his mission. You know, the obvious question is, what does it mean to give ourselves to God? Have you thought about that? I actually had to wrestle with that this week. What, what exactly does it mean to give ourselves to God? Now, there are several things that we can say here, but I wanted this morning to focus on just one thing. And that is giving our physical bodies from head to toe and all of its faculties, our mind, which is the seat of our thoughts, the heart, the seat of our emotions, 
the hands that does the work and the feet that take us from place to place. And there are many more faculties in our bodies. What does it mean to give our physical body with all of its faculties to God? Let's think about that for a sec. First of all, it is biblical. As we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So this is not a weird thing that we are going to give our physical body to somebody. It's biblical. The apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, I wish that we have the time to pause here and, and expound on that verse, but we are not going to be able to do that. But I just wanted to say, to see, this is biblical, giving our physical body from head to toe with all of its faculties to God is biblical. Second, God owns our body, not us. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it reads, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Therefore, when we truly give our physical body to God, all of its faculties, the mind, the heart, the ears, the eyes, and the hands and the feet, they all come under the control of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So, when the Holy Spirit teaches us from God's word, which is one of the functions, one of its functions, our ears hear. Our heart, our mind understands. Our heart rejoices as we apply those teachings in our lives. Do you see it? This, my friends, is called walking with the Spirit or living with the Spirit. In this stage of my life, this is one of the things that I'm passionate about. You know what? The, 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 uh, Linton Phillips earlier said, why are we limping along in, in our lives when the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living within us to able to teach and to guide and to bring to Scripture remembrance that somehow we are limping along. So here is the application of all of this. So if you have questions about stewardship and financial giving, ask the Holy Spirit who lives within you. He knows the things of God. He knows the word of God. He knows how to guide you into all truth. The Bible says these things about the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. So if you are struggling with asking the question, how much should I give? Should I give a percentage of my income or a specific dollar amount? Should it be before taxes or after taxes or on my gross income or net income? Ask the Holy Spirit. He will tell you. Because he churches deep things of God. And he knows how to guide you. 
but to teach you? Should I give according to my means or, or like the Macedonian church, bow by my means? Ask the Holy Spirit. Should I make any lifestyle, lifestyle changes in order to give above my, my means? Ask the Holy Spirit. How often should I give? Should, it be, should I give weekly or monthly or whatever? Ask the Holy Spirit. Should I give? How should I give? Should I give by cash or check or online? Ask the Holy Spirit. Who should I give to? Should I give to my church? Should I give to missionaries and other parachurch ministries? Ask the Holy Spirit. Should I respond to the elder board request to increase my giving? Ask the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit says, you wrestle with the question, how much increase? Ask the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is to bring to remembrance the things that we may have forgotten from, in the, from the Word of God. And so here are some of the things, actually, if you are praying some of these things and asking the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you and give you some instructions on how to answer some of the questions that you are wrestling with, here are some of the things that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, each one must give as he has made up in his mind. Remember, if, we have give, if, if you and I have given our physical bodies from head to toe with all of his faculties to God, the mind is under the control of the Holy Spirit. So when we say each one must give as he has made up his mind, that is spirit-led giving. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So from this passage, I take three takeaways. Giving, financial giving should be spirit-led, it should be cheerful, it would be voluntary or willful giving. Holy Spirit will bring that to mind. It's his job. He knows the scripture. He searches the deep things of God. And here it is. Second scripture that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Apostle Paul writing, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here's the verse 2. On the first day of every week, that is regular giving. Each of you is to put something aside to store up. That is, again, each of you, how do you decide how much to put up? Well, we have given our mind, and therefore the Holy Spirit directs, and therefore it is Spirit-led. Led by the Holy Spirit, we put aside some money. As he may prosper, that is called the proportionate giving. We give in proportion to how God is prospering us. I'm not saying 10% or 15% or 20%. Holy Spirit will tell you. So that there will be no collection when I come. So from this scripture, I take at least, again, spirit-led giving, regular giving, and proportionate giving. Proportion in proportion to how God is blessing us. Here's the third scripture, which you looked at today. Chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. They, the Macedonian churches, gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor. What I see here is actually they are giving according to their means, but then go beyond their means. That is a generous and sacrificial giving. In fact, a while ago, I 
I was in the Global Leadership Summit here, I think here at Midlam Free. We had hosted this previously. And Pastor Bill Hybels, who is the senior pastor of Willow Creek Church, a well-known church, a well-known leader, was speaking about work situation. So he was talking about in your workplace, are you working at the appropriate level or below the appropriate level or above the appropriate level? And so he was talking to people and saying, if you are really working below the appropriate level, well, you need to bump it up. And then he was talking to the people who are working above the appropriate level and basically said, you are on your word to burn out. So we need to bring things down a little bit. Through all of this, uh, as he was talking, I'm saying, I guess he's going to come back and land at the appropriate level. That's what I'm thinking the whole time. And then he said, you know what? You should be working slightly above the appropriate level. And he provided an example of if you are in the business of exercising, you go to gym, you don't work at the appropriate level, do you? If you can lift 50 pounds, I guess you would try to lift 55 pounds or 60 pounds. That's how we build strength. That's how we build muscle. That's how we become healthy. That's how we increase our heart rate. So it pumps well, you know, things of that kind. And so the, his conclusion was that we should be all working slightly above the appropriate level. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit has brought to my mind is that determine what the appropriate level is and then give slightly above. In that way, your faith is stretched. Your trust in God is stretched. And you're putting God to test how much he's blessing you. That's what the Bessarodian church did. And I have summarized all of these on a slide here. These are the principles of giving. Financial giving is spirit-led, regular, proportionate, Cheerful, willful, generous, and sacrificial. So let me conclude what, with the story of what Jim and I have done when the elder board made a call three weeks ago to increase our financial giving. Again, I'm not saying you have to do this. It's simply my story and Jim's story. So on the, on the afternoon that this announcement was first made, just like Sunday, I go, to, go home, and Jim asks, so what are you going to do about this? And I said, I haven't thought much about it yet. And she goes, you have been part of this process, but you haven't thought much about it yet? And then she said, you asked everybody else to give, increase their giving. And therefore, I guess you are going to have to do it. And I said, no, I did not ask anybody to give. <laughs> Jeff Collinger did. <laughs> this happens all the time in our home. Every time a pastor or an elder, I'm both a pastor and an elder, and every time a pastor or an elder stands up and invites people to do something, challenges people to do something, I go home, and the question is always asked, what are you going to do? So we sat down and we talked and we prayed and, and basically said, okay, let's do this. And initially we looked at the amount and said, oh my goodness, that's a lot of money. I'm being honest. Until we realized 
I received 26 paychecks a year. So I took this amount, we, both of us took this amount and divided by 26, and we said, oh, we could do that. That's what we did. Led by the Holy Spirit. Husband and wife coming together and wrestling with the request that the elder board put before us. Again, as I said, I'm not asking you to do this or anything like that. I'm, all I'm saying is grace of God has invaded. If you are a believer here, grace of God has invaded our lives just like a firstborn will invade our lives. The life is never the same again. We renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and instead we pursue you know, the godly lives and self-control lives and upright lives, and we become zealous for God's work. So ask God, actually, the elder board request is actually from God. Ask that to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then respond accordingly. That's the invitation for all of us so that we can define stewardship as responding to God's grace by giving ourselves first to God. Then the Holy Spirit begins to speak and then responding to his mission. I hope all of you get to do that in the weeks and months to come. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for invading us with your grace and changing us in such a way, worldly passions and ungodliness, we are able to renounce, but instead pursue godly things and become zealous for good works. Help me, help Jam, help my brothers and sisters who are here in the coming days and weeks and months so that we can glorify you with our physical bodies, with all our faculties in response to your unmerited favor in our lives. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.